Thank you for tuning in to The Right Stuff, a show about readers and writers for readers and writers. I am Rachel A.G. Gilman, a writer, wanderer, and also your humble host. Today, I am joined by Tamira Reed. Tamira's first feature-length screenplay, Luna's Highway, currently under option, earned her a 2011 finalist placement in Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope Screenwriting Competition and a 2011 semi-finalist placement in the Nichols Screenwriting Fellowship Competition, sponsored by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. She taught screenwriting as a guest faculty member at the Global Social Change Film Festival and Institute in 2011 in Bali, Indonesia, and again in 2012 in New Orleans. Currently, she is a monthly essayist at the award-winning Three Quarks Daily. She teaches writing full-time in NYU's Global Liberal Studies program and is working on both a full-length collection of essays on single parenting in NYC and a network television pilot based in Brooklyn. Thanks for joining me, Tamira. Hi, nice to be here. How did you get interested in writing? I mean, it goes back to those sort of, you know, very early years. I feel like every writer kind of says that, like, I was always a writer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember always being a writer, but I remember always being a really weird kid. And I think that that weirdness actually kind of was the catalyst to get me over to the writing. And I had an older sister at the time who was, you know, just a couple years older than me, but she was years ahead of me in coolness. And so <laughs> she didn't really want to hang out with me a whole lot, which was okay because I would rather be alone. Like I was just such a loner. So I didn't want to be like heavily involved in these sort of like social situations. Like I'd get major anxiety, but I would love to just look at what people were wearing, look at their body language, look at kind of like what wasn't being said, you know, and then listening to everything that was being said. And it was like my mind was just cataloging constantly all this information. Like I was just so curious about you know, what people were doing, why they were doing it, what they were saying, what that meant, you know, and it was just going into the sort of like Rolodex in my mind. What is your process like as a writer? Mm. Would you say that it's different depending on whether you're writing a script or an essay? It's not, you know, super conducive to productivity. (laughs) I am the laziest, most like undisciplined writer. And it sucks because, you know, I I teach writing and I Mm. I preach to my students all the time. Like, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to be disciplined. And I just really... I work really well under pressure, but it's not the way to be. I mean, you really don't have room to kind of like breathe when you're writing like that. Like it's yeah. not great to kind of get into that that way, but it's my way. You know, like I'll sit down and have an idea, you know, about something that I want to say and something I want to write or someone that just like really struck me. And I'm like, that's a story, you know, and I'll, I'll walk around for a long time with it in my head. And I kind of like with a script, I know the characters first. They just come to me and they're like almost fully formed. They're like these inhabitable creatures that I'm just like I know you you know and it's really crazy because I can't wait to like get home and start writing just so I can be with them (laughs) it's weird to come home you know when I've been in relationships and I've like you know been working on a script and it's like you get home and you're like yeah you know you're kind of cool and you're kind of cute I should like want to like snuggle or like hang out and talk but I really just want to go see what like my characters are doing like it's so weird what writers or bodies of work have most greatly influenced your writing? There's two that I can think of in particular. Um, Joanne Beard is one of 
my favorite writer. She was actually my thesis advisor um, at Sarah Lawrence when I was doing my MFA. And I remember I read this essay that she she wrote called The Fourth State of Matter about a shooting um, in her office that left a lot of her friends, you know, dear friends and colleagues dead. But it was so layered. Like there were so many threads in that story. Like she was, you know, like breaking up with her husband at the time. So there was like that sense of loss. Um, Her dog was dying. You know, and then this like people were literally dying and she had absolutely like zero control over anything in her life. She, it was just mm-hmm. like this vortex and she was in the middle of it. But the control she had as a writer was just insane. So she was she was a big influence. And then Juno Diaz, I read. Um, God, I read so much of his stuff in college. I read Drown, which is his collection mm-hmm. of stories. And they're so raw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Some of them are like borderline raunchy, you know, and I was yeah. like, what? You can't talk about like sex like that or like drugs, you know, but then he would just kill you with this like sophisticated, like beautiful line afterwards that was so tender. Like he's so raw, but then just tender at the same time. And to be able to accomplish that is just it's inherent. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. this magical quality that he has. What advice would you give to other writers? It's also subjective. Yeah. You know, and I feel like people get super philosophical about we'll do this and do this you know and it's pretty basic you know it's like (laughs) write yeah you know like if you want to be a writer you have to write something and you have to write a lot you know and it has to become a part of your life where you can't not write and that's Mm -hmm. how you know you're a writer when you can't not write like you just have to do it to feel sane you know you have to read you have to read your so reading and writing you know just every day all the time, you know, just just do it and read widely, read lots of different stuff, especially at like college student age, mm-hmm. um, because you're not settled in your voice yet. You know, like I feel like I'm just finally settling into my voice, you know. And so I think at that age in particular, like you really need to like hear different stuff. You know, there's that thing that people say and I know I'm going to get like a lot of for this, but writing about what you know like, I'm not a huge fan of that advice. Writing about, you know, it's just, I feel like you should write about the stuff that you want to know. Write about the things that you, you can't put your, you know, you really can't wrap your mind around. You're like, why is that happening? Why is that person like that? Because it's curiosity that makes the writer. Yeah. You know, so write about the stuff that you can't figure out. Write about everything that you really, really want to know. You know, and I tell my students that all the time. Like, don't be afraid of the unknown. Like, go for it. Be in it. Um, so there's always something to say. But I say take risks. And mm-hmm. for that reason, like, don't only do this, you know, writing about what you know crap. So what are you going to read for us today? Um, this is I'm working on a collection of stories about um, living in New York, being a single mom, raising this like super awesome, flamboyant, crazy child who's had you know kind of a rough start in life um which i'll address in this piece and then kind of trying to find my own life again outside of (laughs) being this like mom creature (laughs) so this is called the short bus oliver take your binky out Uh uh-uh now nope he wriggles out of my grasp and stands under a small television haphazardly jutting out from the waiting room wall i hate waiting rooms you're always waiting for something bad to happen A woman appears, says she is the doctor, and begins to watch television with my two-year-old son. He notices her, but doesn't acknowledge her, a habit he's picked up. What are you looking at, Oliver? He grunts, shrugs. I asked you, what do you see up there? Without turning his head, he answers, it Nemo. 
close. It's a show about fishermen in Alaska. In her office, I'm told to take a seat in the corner and not to participate. I stuff my hands in my coat pockets, unstuff them, cross, uncross my legs. They play cars, look at books, count blocks. She scribbles on a legal pad, glasses sliding down the bridge of her nose. Eventually, Oliver takes to a corner, rolls around on the carpet, and disengages, except to push a tiny toy motorcycle with his finger. He looks bored. I have some questions for you, she says, facing me. Okay. When did you first notice? And it happens. I crack. She's so shrinky, and I need shrinky right now. I tell her all of our secrets in rapid-fire sentences, the weird little things that only Oliver and I know about. How he arranges everything into rows, long rows of cars and shoes and Cheerios and sometimes bras. How he doesn't always answer when I call his name. How sometimes he can scream for so long that it's like he's trying to fight off a piece of himself. But I don't tell her how he pees in the houseplants. That one is mine. Everything I know about autism I learned from the movies. So when the doctor tells me Oliver might be on the spectrum, the film reel in my mind goes into overdrive. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in a convertible. Tom Hanks offering old ladies chocolate on a park bench. Leonardo DiCaprio stuck up in a tree. Will people wonder what's eating Oliver Duffy? I go into all the pregnancy faux pas I committed, staying in the bathtub too long, accidentally cooking part of his brain, drinking too much coffee, that stolen cigarette break between classes, sushi on my birthday. When I'm alone later, another reality will present itself, a darker one, where a boy can slide out of class unnoticed, push through the school doors, unspeakable things waiting for him on the other side. I want to call his father but don't know where he is. Last time I checked, he was working on himself somewhere in Southern California, which means that I have to love our son double, love him enough for the both of us. The doctor walks us back outside where a cab waits, driver's hairy arm resting on the roll-down window. It's a cold Bronx morning and a line of cold, unemployed people wrap around the face of the building, waiting to be employed again, waiting for someone to give a sh**. Oliver tugs at my jeans, points to the front of his, of his pants that are soaked in what I assume is pee. It gets better, the doctor says. He's a smart kid and he's going to be just fine. Fine. He's going to be great. I immediately go into overdrive and eject him from his overcrowded Chelsea nursery school and enroll him in the best center-based preschool I can find. A place for special need kids with happy art on the walls and even happier teachers carting toddlers around on their hips. The Department of Ed throws free busing into the deal, which means no more commuting. No more of Oliver grabbing himself or others inappropriately. No more screaming from 96th Street to 23rd. No more peeling his limp body like lunch meat from the crowded subway platform. Hordes of therapists begin to flutter in and out of our daily lives with their clipboards and stacking cups and Elmo puzzles easy enough for anyone to do. They come to our apartment and set up camp in the back bedroom and I make them coffee because I don't know what to do with myself, how to manage the seemingly unmanageable. Most days, his disability is flat, edgeless. If you blink, you miss it. A slight hiccup in the normal pattern a tree with a bent limb, a sweater that's missing a button, just slightly off. On a bad day, however, he is all rage and flowing limbs and green eyes that go black then green again. I know this isn't possible, but it's how it feels. I eavesdrop in on their therapy sessions, trying not to laugh when the fresh out of college speech specialist corrects him. I think you mean to say truck, Oliver. No, Oliver means say f My sentiments, exactly. The alarm goes off and we fly out of bed. 
I go to work on his vitamin smoothie and decide a good war anthem is needed, a good victory song, something flashing and hard and sort of emo. I put on Smashing Pumpkins. Then it dawns on me. My son is that rat in the cage. Pulling a pink dinosaur sheet over his shirt over his head, I pause. Does this scream spectrum? I decide it does and go with a sweater vest instead. And he's ready, car's backpack loaded and on, Coke bottle glasses smear-free, jean jacket snapped all the way up. He looks at me and smiles, dimples firing on all cylinders, smoothing the jacket with his chubby hands. Somehow, this breaks my heart, but at this point, I'm used to that. My heart never stood a chance. Our sneakered feet clunk down the three flights of stairs and through the front door and out onto the cracked stoop. Neighborhood kids hustle off to their respective buses, and I sp- flatten his hair and suddenly feel part of something much larger than myself, this morning ritual of getting babies to buses. We've been talking about the bus, making jokes about the bus, wondering aloud who will be on the bus. Will it have big wheels, small doors, enough seats for everyone? Will it shudder and spit in the cold, skid in the rain, glow in the sun? Each night we've played with a convoy of plastic Dwayne Reed buses, zigging and zagging them across the kitchen floor. I've given my excited, over-the-top mom lectures on school safety. He's pretended to listen. We sit and wait and wait. At some point, it becomes clear that the bus is not coming. It's, it's not coming. I don't know what happened. It coming? No, Oliver, it's not coming. It coming. His breathing becomes more erratic. The exhale is choppy and quick. I can't look at him. I can't. And then he does it. He hits me hard, damn hard, right in the arm. A perfect solid sucker punch to my bicep. I slowly turn and he stares me right in the eyes, challenging me, letting me know this sucks, mom. This really f- His chin quivers, but his eyes stay locked on mine. I couldn't be any prouder. Right now, I want to send all the doctors and psychologists and social workers and crap therapists with their sad, depressing faces a big old-fashioned you note. Do you see this, I'd say? He's feeling something the right way. They told me his inappropriate reactions and behaviors to social situations were troublesome, that he couldn't read the cues. Don't hold your breath. But this, this is as close to normal as it gets. He's feeling screwed over by the world, and he is right. So very, very right. Days later, the bus will finally get it straight and arrive in all its pomp and circumstance. Lights flashing, cabs and commuter cars rolling to a reluctant stop behind it. It will be short, fat, and awesomely orange, breaking the monotony of our dilapidated brownstones and forgotten flower buds that line our block. My son will run towards the open door, shoving my hands away, the bus swallowing him whole, plucking him like the jaws of life from our moment. I'll wave to him, and he'll stare blankly, out and over my head, over our building, ignoring my need for him, eyes on the prize. Thank you so much to Tamira for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Rachel A.G. Gilman, and this has been The Right Stuff on WNYU.org.